Let's take our Bibles and go to 2 Kings chapter 17. And no, I'm not running late. I was having good fellowship with Brother Billy back there. Second Kings chapter 17, where we again take up this morning with our study of the children of Israel making molten images, specifically in the text, two golden calves, or two molten calves, I'm sorry, two molten calves, and I'm assuming they were made of gold, but the verse doesn't specifically tell us that. Now, all of this was contrary to God's commandments that were given to their forefathers in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, which we read last week. And I'll read it again in a few moments. But as I meditated on this, I wondered if the Israelites in those days did as many do today when it comes to God's Word. And you know, this fits right in with what Brother Billy and I were talking about, how you could you could post something funny on Facebook, and boy, people will like and repost it and all that, and you put something spiritual on there, and it's crickets. And I said, welcome to our world. That's That's why we... This beautiful church we have, we have more empty pews than we do full pews, is not that many people, and you might as well get used to it, not that many people are interested in the Bible, in learning the Bible. And I'm not talking about lost people. They're not interested at all. I'm talking about church people are not generally interested in learning more about this. If I went to the average church, and I don't care what denomination it is, you pick one. And I waited outside the church until they were done and found a member, maybe somebody my age, and asked them, what did you learn about the Bible today in your church? Well, I'm not real sure what kind of answer I'd get. Maybe somebody would be able to tell me something, but I think that many would not. They'd say, well, what do you, what do you mean? We, we didn't really talk about it that much. Well, we do. Praise God, that's all we've got to talk about. And so to read and understand and obey the Bible seems to be an outdated religious practice to many people. And they've swallowed that poison bit by bit, believing that the religion of their grandmothers and their grandfathers was good for them back then in those days. But times have changed, and those people, therefore, come to believe that they're not bound to the same religion that their forefathers believed and practiced. And as we've learned in many ways in our study of the Bible, the people in the day we're reading about have added this golden calf or and we're just going to call it a molten calf. If you hear me call it a golden calf, it probably was made of gold. Because as you'll see in a little while, if we get to it, they were repeating the sins of Jeroboam, who began the church of the golden calf. So don't get too hung up if I say golden or molten. Uh, even though that 
verse 16 doesn't say golden, it says molten, then it's, it's going to essentially be the same thing. You know, the Catholic Church has added their sacraments and their indulgences and their statues that they bow down to. The Baptist churches have added their sinner's prayers and their uh, phrases that they like to add in there. They'll say, if you haven't specifically claimed Jesus as your Lord, then you're not saved. And others, if you haven't confessed with your mouth the Lord Jesus, then you're not saved. Well, what would you do with someone who's unable to speak? Could they be saved? Not by your gospel. The Baptist churches have done that. And other churches have added, decided that, well, we're going to make women deacons and pastors. And some have celebrated and ordained homosexual pastors. But all of them have done the same thing the children of Israel did. They set aside the commandments of God in favor of the traditions of men. In a spiritual sense, they made unto themselves molten images. They've made calves. Now looking again at the passage from Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, and then I'm just reading the first part of it. So I put the letter, little letter A next to the number 4, 24A. And you're going to see in that verse that God doesn't prohibit the making of any images at all. It says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And the words unto thee are rendered as the words for yourself in other translations, many translations. So that's the key phrase in that commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or for yourself any graven image. Now, why do you think God put that in there? Well, there is a good reason for it. I want you to listen to the description of a man whom God appointed to make some of the things that pertain to what the high priest wore and to the furnishings of the tabernacle. It's found in Exodus chapter 20, or excuse me, 38, Exodus 38, verse 23. And with him was Aholiab, son of Ahizamach of the tribe of Dan, an engraver, and a cunning workman, and an embroiderer in blue and in purple and in scarlet and fine linen. In fact... God put the wisdom in the hearts of certain men in order to enable them to make certain images. Exodus chapter 31, verses 1 through 6. Just listen as I read that passage. Exodus 31, verses 1 through 6. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by name... Bezaliel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And listen to what God said. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship 
to devise cunning works to work in gold and in silver and brass, and in cutting of stones to set them, and in carving of timber to work in all manner of workmanship. And behold, I have given with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan. And in the hearts of all that are wise-hearted, I have put wisdom that they may make all that I have commanded thee. So do you see that? God specifically put the wisdom to be able to engrave, to do metal work, to, do, to carve and, and earlier embroidery and all of that into the hearts of these men because there were things he wanted them to make with that wisdom. But who were they making them for? God, not unto thee. They were making them for God. So don't think for a moment that because God told the children of Israel, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, and because he condemned this group of Israelites for making these molten images, don't think that God is displeased with a person because he is an engraver or a stone cutter or a wood carver. Not at all. In fact, he gave those men those talents, which they were to use only for the service of the Lord. Aholiab had a gift from God, and he was made to do this work for the tabernacle and for the priests. Now, the priests weren't gifted with these talents. You think about that, the brazen altar... The garments that they wore, including the, the ephod and the breastplate and all of the things they had that were made of both material and metal, the crown, all of that. That would have been a mess if the high priest would have said, you know what, we'll just make that. God didn't give them those talents. God gave those to certain men. And so when you put your hand to something for which God has not given you the ability, you make a mess. The last church I attended and where I was a member for several years was held in an older building. Well, here's how old it was. It sat up on board art stumps. That was its foundation. So it tended to move a little bit with that blackland dirt we have there in North Texas. And it had been fashioned over the years by committee work. Some of you all know what that means. Some fella here did a little work, and then another one came along and said, what do we have? Well, let's add that to this. And uh, That's what keeps people like Brother Billy in business if you do that on your car. That's what keeps people like Brother Tony in business when he was doing the deck building, people putting stuff together here and there, and they make a mess. Well, anyhow... Uh, I thank God for his intervention in that matter because there was a house next to the church's property and an explosion occurred there. The residents had tried to hijack the Atmos gas line and run a line to their house. Well, they didn't line it up just right, and they had an explosion. Thankfully, nobody was killed. And so Atmos Energy turned off the gas for the entire area until everything was made safe. And I happened to be mowing the church lawn up there uh, one Saturday, and the Atmos worker came to me and said, I need to turn your gas back on, but I need to 
light your pilot on your hot water heater before we do that. I said, all right. So I took him inside, and he found the hot water heater, and he and I both looked like this when we got through looking at the pipe that was running to it. We were in for a surprise. Somebody had used PVC pipe to run a gas line. Now, if you don't understand what that means, it sounds like most of you do, I'll explain it. Buildings shift and move. And the gas lines have to be one of two things. One, they have to be strong enough to withstand the movement, or two, they have to be flexible enough to go with it. And it's usually a combination of those things. And PVC pipe is neither strong nor flexible. Now, had that old church shifted enough to crack that PVC just a little bit, we would have had a gas leak in the church. And as our church is, and that one was, we don't have somebody in the church every day during the week. So it would have built up. Now, guess who usually arrived at church before everyone else did to turn the lights on and to get the, everything set up? That was me. I lived just down the street from it. And one spark from a light switch would have blown me and the church into a million pieces. And only Jesus could glorify that body as it was put back together one day. What's the point here? The point is that someone, probably several people, who were not talented and gifted, who did not have the wisdom in them to do plumbing, had put their hand to a task that required a plumber. Now I want you to imagine the plumber, the one who saw that, the one who ended up fixing it, what that plumber would have done had we handed him a Bible and said, here, since one of our church members has decided to be a plumber when he's not, why don't you go in here and I want you to teach the Bible to these people for the next few years and see how you do. Well, he'd blow the Bible into a million pieces, wouldn't he? Because not that a plumber can't also be gifted to teach God's word, but when he's not, he has no business trying to expound God's word. He needs to be a student. We're all students, but he doesn't need to be a teacher. God doesn't gift everyone to do that. Now listen to what Aholiab, who was called for this task, and what his helpers did when it came to making the curious girdle that was worn by the high priest. And it's found in Exodus chapter 39, verse 6. Exodus 39, verse 6. And they wrought onyx stones enclosed in the ouches of gold. That's a part of the, the curious girdle. Graven as signets are graven, with the names of the children of Israel. Now, what did they carve or what did they engrave on this curious girdle, on these onyx stones? The names of the children of Israel. God had a specific thing in mind when he gave these men these talents, and they were to be used for certain things. And in this case, it was to engrave the names of the children of Israel on these stones. And then in verse 30 of that same passage, that would be Exodus 39, verse 30, we see what was done to the holy crown that was worn by the high priest. And they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote upon it a writing like to the engravings of a signet, holiness to the Lord. So somebody made a graven image. They made a crown 
and they engraved on it holiness to the Lord. And that's why it's important for you to see that when God said, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images, that's exactly what he means. And I think I mentioned it last week, but uh, the pastor made a Facebook post about that because we were... We've been talking about images and molten images for some time, and I hope that was a, that was a help to you. It, was, it certainly should have been. It was very well written. The problem with Israel is not that they made something out of precious metals, like gold or silver. The problem is, that, is not that they had engravers or stone cutters or wood carvers among them, the problem is that they made unto themselves graven images, a molten calf or two of them in this case, and they worshiped them, which is also something God specifically forbade them to do in Exodus chapter 20. If you go back to the first mention of a molten calf in the Bible, it's found in Exodus 32, 4, where the children of Israel were impatient, waiting on Moses to come out of the mount. And they said, well, as for this Moses, we wot not what has become of him. Up, let us make gods. And so here's what Aaron did when they brought all their golden earrings to him. It says, and he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool. After that, he made it a molten calf. Now, stop right there. If that's all you had, you really don't know if you have an offense or not. They made a golden calf. There were some among them, obviously, who were talented to do foundry and engraving and all that. But we don't know who they made it for if we just stop right there. Well, let's read the rest of that verse. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, who brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Now it's clear that they made those graven images unto themselves because they were called thy gods. These be thy gods. You made your own gods for yourself. And we talked about the foolishness of submitting yourself to something that you actually made with your own hands. Now, I want us to look at something else. And boy, this was rich. When I saw this in the study yesterday, I thought, man, I've got to, I've got to study this one deeply. So we may not get out of verse 16 again. That's okay. The phrase, these be thy gods, as it was applied to that single golden calf made in Exodus 32, might be a little confusing to you at first. So listen closely. The Hebrew word translated gods from, Hebrew, from Exodus 32, 4, that Hebrew word is Elohim, and that is the plural of the word El, the Hebrew word El, E-L. And you've seen that in the Old Testament, Bethel, El, uh, yeah, El Shaddai, and you could go on and on if you study the Hebrew language there for the Old Testament. But it's a plural noun. So Elohim is the plural and El is the singular. Now your first thought might be, why then would the Hebrew word Elohim 
a plural word be used to describe a single golden calf that was made by the children of Israel in Aaron's day. Well, do you know where the Hebrew word Elohim is first used in the Bible? It's used in the very first verse of the Bible. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens, the heaven and the earth. God is not only capitalized, but it is a singular word in the English language. What's the plural of God in English? It's God's, isn't it? But it's, it's a singular word, God, and it is a proper noun. It is the one true God, our creator. And that's not a mistranslation because if you looked at Elohim, you would think, okay, that's a plural word in the Hebrew, so it should be a plural word in the English, but uh-oh, it's a singular word. It's God. Now, some of you may have covered this when you went through the Genesis to Jesus class. I don't know. I suspect you did, but I'm not certain. If you did, you need a review. If you haven't, this is brand new learning for you. And you might already understand this, but some don't. God exists in three persons, but he is one God. Those three persons are one God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In fact, knowing this will help you with Genesis 1, verse 26, little letter A. Where it says, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. In that part of the verse, there are three plural possessive pronouns. Us, our, and our. And you may say, wait a minute, I'm confused. God is a singular pronoun. Or proper noun, excuse me, a singular proper noun. Then why would it? Why would we see us, our, and our? Why not my, my, and my? Why didn't God say, "Let me make man in my image after my likeness"? Well, from this verse that I just read you, in fact, that part of the verse, there are religions who believe in more than one God. They say, "He said our." And it's because they don't have a complete understanding of the Bible. They've taken a little piece of a scripture and said, oh, we're going to make a religion out of that. That's what Satan does, by the way. He likes to parse scriptures and use them to contradict each other and all of that. But the reason the words us, our, and our are there is not to suggest that there's more than one God. It is to show us that God exists in three persons. And we can't fathom that, can we? Until we understand that when we were made in his image, we were also made in three persons, a body, soul, and spirit. Where Paul prayed that your, whole, that your body, soul, and spirit be sanctified. Three different words in the Greek language when, when he prayed that. But if you'll learn what I'm, and yes, we're still talking about the significance of the two molten calves here, but if you'll learn what I'm trying to show you about this truth, you will understand just how profoundly the children of Israel rebelled when they made these two molten calves. So hang in there. Don't change the channel on me.
So God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now let's answer three questions, and hopefully we'll have time to do that all today. Three questions. First of all, was all of the Godhead, or what people call the Trinity, was all of the Godhead involved in the creation? And two, how do I know that all three members of the Godhead are one rather than three separate gods or three separate beings? And three, is there anywhere in the Bible, anywhere else besides the Genesis verse I read you, where the persons of the Godhead speak to one another? So let's look at the first question. Was all of the Godhead involved in the creation? 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. And if you'll just write the verses down, then... I'll read them, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. But to us there is but one God, Father, the Father of whom are all things. So it says, God, our Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. So right there, the Apostle Paul says that, by God are all things, and by Jesus Christ are all things. Now, if by God are all things, and he is one God, and then Jesus is another God, then there's nothing left for Jesus to have all things by, or to make all things, is there? If God made all things, and let's, according to some religions that believe Jesus was either another God or a created being, if he was a created being, then the Bible would be wrong by saying he created all things. So Jesus was not a created being because by him are all things. The scripture tells us this, not only here, but in other places. So for all things to be by God and by Jesus at the same time, they have to be one. And then that is possible. Okay, so there's that. Now, First John or excuse me, John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. We're answering the question, was all the Godhead involved in the creation? It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now that's John the Baptist. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light. That's with a capital L, that's Jesus. That all men through him might believe. He was not that light, that means John the Baptist was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and listen to this, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. So this was God the Son, because the Bible says he was in the world. Now, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved across the face of the waters. So we've answered our first question. Yes, all of the Godhead, or as man calls the Trinity was 
involved in the creation. All. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, two. How do I know that all three members of the Godhead are one rather than three separate gods? Well, we've partially answered that by the text in 2 Corinthians 8, 6, when we saw that by God the Father are all things and by the Lord Jesus Christ are all things, and that can only be possible if they are one. So we've got a head start on it right here. Now, friends, this is good systematic theology. This is worth taking notes over or going back and listening to again, so don't miss these truths. Now listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 30. He said, I and my Father are one. So what say you religious heretics that may tune in and listen who believe Jesus was a created being? He said, he and his Father are one. And we know God wasn't a created being. And he said this, Jesus said this as he was standing on the earth, yet he was still one with the Father. So that means he doesn't have to physically be at his Father's right hand to be one with the Father. And Romans chapter 8 verse 9. Romans chapter 8 verse 9. Paul wrote, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And it's a capital S. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So if Jesus and his Father are one, then Jesus and the Spirit of God, also referred to as the Spirit of Christ here, are one. And one more verse to seal it up really well is 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7. <laughs> For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word with a capital W, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. You say, well, well what's the Word? The Word is capitalized, so that's a person, that's a proper noun. And he is Jesus because in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, it says, And the Word, with a capital W, was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is his glory, a person. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This is he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. So the word, the capital W, that's a capital W in case y'all don't know why I keep flashing the number three. It is not a gang sign. It's a capital W. Was made flesh and then was described with personal pronouns. Him. Isn't that exciting? So when... 1 John 5, 7 says, The Father, the Word, you might as well put the Son of God, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That seals it up, friend. The Godhead, three persons, are one. And your Bible says so. That's not my theology. That's not just a Baptist theology. That's good old Bible doctrine. 
And it's right here before us. Then our third question, besides the Genesis text where God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, is there anywhere else in the Bible the members of the Godhead speak to one another? Now, when you learn all this and we go back to those molten calves, you're going to say, oh, Israel, what have you done? Mark chapter 1, verse 11. Mark chapter 1, verse 11. After he was baptized in the Jordan River, Jesus came out of the water, and God the Father said to God the Son, it says, And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So there the Father speaks to the Son. In John chapter 17, and that entire chapter is Jesus speaking to the Father. It's that high priestly prayer he prayed on our behalf. John 17 and verse 1, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may also glorify thee. So the Son speaks to the Father. And then Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Luke 4, 18. The Spirit, with a capital S, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now this is what Jesus said, and he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 27, I believe it is. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's the Holy Spirit. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. So looking at that verse by way of inference, we learn that the Holy Spirit communicated with the Son about this anointing and about what he was sent to do to preach the gospel. And yes, there are other places in the Bible, many others, where one member of the Godhead speaks to another. Now, we went into great depth answering those three questions because we need to know that the Bible makes an ironclad case that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one even though the Hebrew word Elohim is translated also as the word gods with a little g. So when the children of Israel under Aaron's watch made and worshipped a single golden calf, they worshipped what Aaron called, what did he say? These be thy gods, O Israel. And looking at the Hebrew word that was used in that verse, it's Elohim. It's Elohim, it's plural, even though it was a single calf. In other words, don't miss this, Israel in Aaron's day accepted that golden calf as their Godhead. Did you get that? They accepted that golden calf as their Godhead, as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All the Godhead was supposed to be to them. 
they transferred to that golden calf. They said, this is all we need. We don't need the golden calf just so we can see him and therefore we can dismiss Jesus, but we still need God the Father and Spirit. No, they rejected the entirety of the Godhead and put all of that, all of those attributes, all of those beings in that calf. Accepting a new Godhead means rejecting the true Godhead. And rejecting the Father is rejecting the Son and the Holy Spirit. And rejecting the Son means you've rejected the Father and the Holy Spirit. And if you've rejected the Holy Spirit, it means you've rejected God the Father and God the Son. You cannot reject one member of the Godhead... And believe in the others because you make all three of them a liar by your unbelief in one. And your unbelief in one is not just your unbelief in one. It's your unbelief in the whole Godhead. You want Bible proof for this? You need it. Because you're going to run across people who tell you they believe in God. They just don't believe that Jesus is God. You are. John chapter 15, verse 23. John 15, verse 23. Jesus said, He that hateth me, hateth my Father also. So what did he just tell all of the people in this world who say, Oh, we believe in God. Let's take the nation of Islam or the religion of Islam who say, Oh, we believe in one God. But Jesus Though he was a good prophet and a good man and all of that, they don't discount that. At least the Koran doesn't. They reject him as God. Therefore, they cannot have the one they say is the true God because he's not the true God. The one true God is the Godhead about whom we've studied. The one whom our Bible declares. So hating Jesus or rejecting Jesus, which is hating Jesus... And believing in the Father and the Spirit does not make you two-thirds correct in your theology. You get a big fat zero. You're an unbeliever. Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 through 32. Matthew 12, 31 through 32. Where Jesus wrote, or said, Wherefore I say unto you, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, notice he said the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world nor in the world, neither in the world to come. Now, just to be real brief here, because this is this is a passage. Brother Fulton taught on on Sunday afternoons many years ago when we were going through the book of Matthew. I don't expect you to remember everything about it. But in short, rejecting the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit or blaspheming the Holy Ghost is not when you accidentally let a cuss word slip out of your mouth. That's not going to send you to hell. Unbelief is what sends you to hell. Rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ is what sends you to hell. It's the same thing. But rejecting the Holy Ghost or rejecting the Holy Spirit is rejecting God completely. You can't say, I reject the Holy Ghost, 
But I do believe in God, and I do believe in Jesus. Once again, you get a zero. You're an unbeliever. Listen to some who rejected, some in the Bible, who rejected at least part of the Godhead. Acts 23, verse 8. Acts chapter 23, verse 8, where Luke wrote, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit. But the Pharisees confess both. So the Sadducees believed in God the Father, but they rejected the Spirit. And they rejected the resurrection, which means they did not believe that Jesus or we could be resurrected from the dead. So what did they have? They had a golden calf, didn't they? They weren't one-third right. But did you notice it said that the Pharisees confessed both? It says resurrection, angel, nor spirit. Now, even if we say the word both means all three of those, they still denied whom? They denied that Jesus was God. They called him a blasphemer for making those claims. So even if the Pharisees said, we believe in God the Father, we believe in God the Holy Spirit, but this man Jesus, we reject him. What do they get? Big fat zero. They're unbelievers. So now that we've studied the significance of the molten calf, let's look at the significance of the number two because we have two molten calves in 2 Kings 17, verse 16. Not only did they make a molten calf, they made two of them. And in the Bible, the number two is the number for witness. For witness. God made two great lights, one to rule the day and one to rule the night. And those lights bore witness of the light of the world, the true light that John calls it, which we learn that's who Jesus is. Several times the Bible says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, Revelation 1 verse 1, sorry, in Revelation 11, I imagined a colon between the two ones. That's what happens when you have a floater. I hope I don't imagine a green light on my way home. Well, we'll see how that works out. In Revelation chapter 11, God tells of two witnesses whom he will send forth to prophesy in sackcloth and ashes. And skipping down to verse 7 of that chapter, it says, And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. So acceptance of the golden calf in Aaron's day was enough to show Israel's complete rejection of God, of the Godhead. Well, what then is the significance of two calves, which were molten images? In my estimation, these two calves, because there were two, serve as witnesses to the whole world that Israel had turned away from God. Even their enemies would confess that. 
However, there's also another significance to the two calves, which we will study next Sunday, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good attention of those who listen today, both on the internet and in here, and who take seriously the study of your word. And I pray now, Lord, you would uh, be pleased that it find a lodging place in our hearts, that we would meditate upon it throughout the week, and then build upon it as we come back next week to continue this study. In Jesus' name, amen.